0: Well, we definitely miss the New England winter, but we also definitely have a New England spring at work. Um, are we ready for a little quiz? <laughs> You're not even going to pretend that I'm going to give it? One day, boy. One day. Sorry? I told you. And you didn't believe me. No, I told you like Monday, I said maybe today. I warned you. You didn't believe me. So if I told you in advance, would you believe me? <laughs> but I did. The evidence is you won't believe me. Real? Oh well okay, fine. It's not gonna happen yet. <laughs> you know you could get me to do it. Okay. Um, did we finish Astropol and still on? Do we finish our second reading? No. Ah, oh, sad. Well, there is a final. You have to remember that in this class. So um, at some point, you'll want to pass, I think. I mean, people do. That's my experience in the four or five years I've been teaching here. Um, did you read more of it? <laughs> Oh, man, how about that, Romney? (laughs) The Celtics broke a five-game losing streak against the Cavs. No? God. What do you guys talk about at parties? (laughs) All right. Is that the periodic table? No. No. It's Tetris. It's the same thing pretty much Russian, and it all goes down and gets more complicated as you get farther into it and as the scores go up. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent quite comfy. Nice. All right, well, what we were doing yesterday was sort of um, looking at bits and pieces uh, yesterday, Monday. Uh, What we were doing yesterday was not reading the, doing the reading we were supposed to be doing for today. What we were doing at Monday, was bits and pieces of Astrophel and Stella um, while also interweaving um, those bits and pieces with a sense of the story as a whole. And one of the things that I was asking you to think about um, were things that happened in Astrophel and Stella. So one thing that happens um, that we talked about on Monday is that um, they, they both go see the same entertainment, the same performance, the same narrative. Um, where Stella gets, um, feels um, pity for a fictional character, um, and yet doesn't seem to feel pity for Astrophel himself. Um, and he says, Treat me as a fictional character. Part of the um, subtlety and part of the sophistication, Sidney is an extraordinarily sophisticated poet. Um, and part of Sydney's sophistication, is that here this fictional character is saying, treat me as a fictional character. Um, That is, we are reading a fiction. It may be based on reality, but really what isn't. Um, But we are reading a fiction in which a character is complaining that he would feel much better if he were treated as fictional. and uh, to some extent, that both confirms and disconfirms the very thing it says. However, within this fiction, what we know is, okay, so Stella has a taste for fiction. Um, that's one of the things, perhaps, that um, makes gives Astrophel hope, um, or at least gives Astrophel some kind of opening um, to imagining a way that she would pity the tale of him, as um, he puts it. Later on, so let's go to, um, I think it is 57. Um, so now we're talking about uh, 12 sonnets later. Um, and... Um, Yeah, let's look at both 57 and 58. So 57, woe having made with many fights his own each sense of mind, each gift, each power of mind, grown now his slaves. That is um, his senses, his gifts, his powers of mind. Um, Again, this is part of Sidney's inventiveness. Remember in the very first sonnet, what he says is that he wanted inventions stay. He wanted in, he wanted invention to help him forward. One of the poems you should have read, I hope you did read, was um, in the um, Emerus Jones volume, is the double sestina called Ye Goatherd Gods. Um, do people know what a sestina is? Did you read Ye Goatherd Gods? OK. So a sestina is a complicated form um, much used in the 20th century by 20th century poets. If you've um, some, do have any of you read Elizabeth Bishop? Um, she has a poem called Sestina and a poem called A Miracle for Breakfast. Is this not familiar to anyone? Which one? Uh, sestina in high school. You did Sestina in high school. Yeah. Um, okay. So the form of a sestina. Um, I didn't bring that copy, but but someone pull out, or all of you just for a minute, pull out Ye Herd Gods. Um, A sestina is a great um, form to write in. The um, poet John Ashbery, um, probably the greatest living American, probably, definitely the greatest living American poet, um, said what was neat about a sestina, but why he eventually stopped writing them, was that uh, writing sestinas was like riding a bicycle downhill. Um, Sestinas... force a certain form on you. So a sestina is usually a 39-line poem. And it's divided into six six six-line stanzas with a three-line coda called the envoy, the send-off to the sestina. This is familiar to you? Um, So if the first stanza has as its end words, these aren't rhymes that I'm giving you now. Most sestinas don't rhyme. Um, It's possible to rhyme them, but it's actually kind of weird when they get rhymed um, because the rhymes get uh, mixed and matched in a weird way. But if the first six lines of a sestina have as their last words A, B, C, D, E, and F, um, in the double sestina it's valleys, mountains, music, uh, forest, morning, and evening, Um, I think that's what it is, right? Um, what are the first six words of the last lines? Mountains, valleys, forests, music, morning, evening. Right. Yeah, okay. So what you will then see is the second stanza will have as the last word of the first line of the second stanza will be the last word of the first stanza. So what is the first one? Valleys, mountains? Is that what you said? Mountains, valleys, morning, evening. So, line one of stanza two will end with evening. Then, and what happens is what you do is you get a weaving back and forth like this. That's the order that the words will appear in the second stanza. So, if you have A, B, C, D, E, F, you then get F A E. B, D, C. Right? You can confirm that. What are the last words of the second stanza? Between mountains, morning valleys, music for us. Right. And so that's what happens in the second stanza. Then that happens again. So we get C, F, D, A. B E it happens again a fourth time it happens again a fifth time it happens again a sixth time and then you get the envoy where it happens yet one more time Um, and what happens in the course of the sixth stanza, so what's the sixth stanza? read the last words You actually have to count because there are thirteen stanzas in Ego Her, Gods. Valleys, music, evening, morning, forest, mind. Right. And then the seventh stanza? Mountains, valleys, forest, music, morning, evening. Which is the same as the first. So you cycle through six different orders, and then you get to the point where you would go back to the first order. Um, there are only a certain um, line, there are only a few stanza lengths that this will work for. There's actually a couple of math papers on this, One in one of which I'm cited, um, about which poems can work as what are called, by the mathematicians who like this sort of thing, n Um You can do it with six, you can't do it with twelve. There's a, I think it has, it's, um, the double of a mercine prime, I think, is what Sestinas have to be and If I, but I'm, I'm not positive about that, but it's something like that. Um, no one says what's a mercine prime. I guess you all know. That's fine then. Um, okay, so that form, Sidney does it twice. That is, you have stanzas one through six, then he cycles again through stanzas se- stanza seven through 12, and then he has the envoy in which you will have the same six words once again now put into three lines. Each line has two of those words. So someone read the envoy aloud. That is the last three lines of the poem. Yes, mountains witness shall, so shall these valleys, these forests be made wretched by our music, our morning hymn this is, and song at evening. So you hear it's mountains, valleys, forests, music, morning, evening, one last time. Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm very confused, and I think this is a bit over my non-mathematician head. No, you don't have this is a poetry thing, not a math thing. Um, wait, so go back to how that's happening. Okay, so look at the first stanza. Okay. Read it aloud. Um, The very first one? Yeah, ye goat-herd gods. Ye goat-herd goat gods that love the grassy mountains, ye nymphs which haunt the springs and pleasant valleys, ye satyrs joyed with free and quiet forests, Vouchsafe your silent ears to plaining music, which to my woes gives in early morning, and draws the duller until weary evening. OK, so you see there's six words that end the lines, yes. as there would be six words that end any six lines. Yes. Now read the second stanza. Oh, Mercury, for goer to the evening. OK, stop there. What's the last word of the first line <coughs> of the second stanza? You, OK. Oh, so it's, <coughs> it's not an inversion, it's like alternating? Yeah, it's a weaving. So, you go from A, you have A, B, C, D, E, F, then for the second stanza, start here and just follow the bouncing ball, and you go from F to A, okay, F to A, Okay. then from A to E, that's the E here, then from E to B is the B here, from B to D, from D to C. Like, so it spirals in. Right? It's like the, like, I don't know. I, like, this whole thing basically like the per- first person who cracked open an egg. It was like, hey, I should eat that. Like, this doesn't, you know, it's all goopy. Like, you wouldn't think of that if you were the first right. person to make an egg. So it's a, it's a, a, it's a form that the troubadours wrote in. Um, and in particular, um, although he wasn't the first person to write it, um, Arnaud Daniel was the most famous of the troubadours to write in it um, in the 13th century. And um, there is a poem by a guy named Alan Anson. Does anyone have their computer out? Um, If not, I'll send it to you. Sorry? Okay. so it's um, A-N-S-E-N, S-E-N. And it's called A Fit of Something Against Something. That's actually what it's called. I'm not (laughs) blanking. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not blanking. So see if you can find Uh, that. Really? Yeah. That's too bad. Huh. fit of something against something? Yeah, a fit of something against something. All right, try just look up Anson and Sestina. Right. But why is his longer than... Because what... So it's typical of Sidney that he takes a form... <coughs> in the same way that Wyatt introduced the sonnet into English, Sidney introduced... <coughs> more different forms and also invented more different forms than any other poet in English. Um, Wordsworth is second to Sidney, I believe, in the number of different forms he wrote in. Um, But Sidney, someone counted once, and there are like 114 different forms that Sidney brought into English. And um, a lot of the poems that are not in Astrophil and Stella, which are mainly, although not entirely, sonnets, um, but a lot of the poems that are from a book called Certain Sonnets, and also from um, the book called Arcadia, are Sidney just demonstrating different ways, of different poetic forms from French and Italian that he was the first person to write in in English, and then some of them he invented. So nothing on Anson and Sestina? No, nothing. Hey, this makes no sense. Um, this is sufficiently worth digressing, and as you know, I never digress. But <laughs> you Yeah? Um, are it always a five and a half foot meter, or is this just particular to this point? Um It's um, this is actually a iambic meter with feminine ending, right. iambic pentameter with feminine ending. Um, no, it isn't always. Um, Anson, Christina, I might have a better Google than you. You're probably using Alta Vista or something. Um, okay, so. There are examples of it. I didn't get anything. Okay, lem- maybe you're misspelling "sestina." Um, I'm just trying to think. Okay, fit. Let's see if that works. Yeah, here. Oh, they have it wrong. Fit of something against nothing, but it's actually fit. I'm pretty sure it's. Maybe I'm misremembering it. Um, Okay, I'm just going to read this to you. It's Sestina length, because it's actually a sestina. Um, The title is A Fit of Something Against Nothing. Um, I don't think we're going to read the poem called A Fit of Rhyme Against Rhyme, but that's by Ben Johnson. Um, So this is Anson, who's uh, died maybe 10 years ago, um, who's written an allusion to um, A Fit of um, Rhyme Against Rhyme. and it's actually for John Ashbery, um, the poet who, um, s- who stopped writing Sestinas. So this will be helpful to you because it's a history of poetry. In the burgeoning age of Arnaud, when for God and man to be shown a glory, not a symptom, poetry was not austere. Complicated laws had followed, generosity through order dowered acrobats with hoops trapezing laurels undergone. Fountain-like gyrations earned the free trouvere the name of master, and the climax of his daring was the dazzling Sestina. So now you know. That's the first stanza. When love, the subject object of romance Sestina, left gay Provence for learned Italy, to be the guide and guard and graveyard as of a supreme master, the plaything followed. Intricate turned more austere and doubled in and on its tracks. Now woebegone, began to learn its place and kiss the rod of order. Petrarch and Sydney, Times, Woodsman, reorder to pastoral the still pregnant Sestina. With history and logic come to be the inspisations of its present master, landscapes that turn upon themselves have gone to shape a shining surface to austere. The pious young would be austere. They pant and puff, pursuing order. Within a shorter breath, Sestina, the fewer true. Those that have gone the masturbatory course must be in doubt if they or it is master. New rebels will not master forms pointlessly austere. They feel that they will be screwed by that alien order, that Gestapo sestina. Cats! It's the most ungone. It zings all gone. It's no master. Get lost, sestina. Go away, austere. You'll always be out of order. Sestina, order, austere, master, begone. So the so it's a history of poetry, basically, as shown in the use of the sestina. Um, we get to the beats in the 50s um, when we get cats it's the most ungone so just imagine um, a 50s beat poet just saying we would say dude Um, It's zings all gone it's no master get lost sestina go away austere you'll always be out of order and then the envoy the last three line stanza is just the six words of the sestina sestina order that is the order of the sestina sestina order Austere master, be gone. Um, so that's a history of poetry through a history of the sestina done in a sestina in seven different styles representing seven different ages of poetry, thereby also alluding to Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man. Yeah? would it be easier to track a sestina by numbering it instead of giving it letters? Yeah. Because then the letters would change each, like, each revolution. Based, well, the, the problem is they wouldn't change each other. Well, yeah, it is it's easier in your head. You would say 615243. Each stanza does to the previous stanza 615243. If you ever are trying to break into a poet's live journal account, try that as their PIN number. 615243. Um, so Sydney, the point is that Sydney introduces the Sestina into English. It's a really um, interesting form, if you pick the right end words. Um, Some of the neatest poems in English um, are sestinas. Seamus Heaney has a great sestina called Two Lorries. Elizabeth Bishop has two really wonderful sestinas, especially the one simply called Sestina. It's the one that begins, September rain falls on the house. Um, And it's just a great, great poem. the last line is, and the child draws another inscrutable house. Yeah? What is this from, this sestina that um, Sydney wrote? Because I so, actually found it more interesting than a lot of Astrophil and OK. Well, we are going to get back to Astrophil and Stella in a minute. But Sydney wrote a romance called Arcadia. And that romance is partly about shepherds, as you know, even from Astrophil and Stella, um, where at one point Stella is called a shepherdess. Um, Sidney was interested in the form called pastoral. Um, I think, although I'm not positive, that there's a kind of pun, rhyming pun, in the name astrophel and the idea of pastoral. So what pastoral is, um, and we'll have more occasion to look at it, um, pastoral is a kind of fantasy of a life reduced to radical simplicity, where the idea is that the poet is a shepherd Um, This is a very old idea. It goes back to antiquity. It goes back to the Greeks um, and um, was something that Virgil, among others, picked up on. But the idea is that what poets are is um, they represent themselves as shepherds who are taking care of sheep. But what it means to take care of a sheep is just to walk around all day while the sheep um, graze on the grass and make sure that they're okay. But you don't really have to do anything else. They don't have to be milked. They don't have to be um, uh, made to jump over um, uh, barriers or to trot or anything like that. So it's a life in which you're outdoors all the time, um, enjoying the outdoors and in which uh, you can relax, that's the fantasy. And so what do the shepherds do? They take pipes, reeds, and they um, play, they blow into them and play music and compose songs. And so pastoral is a song by a shepherd. That's the um, fiction, that pastoral is a song by a shepherd, in which the shepherd talks about elemental issues. The shepherd lives an elemental life. Um, the only things that matter um, to the life of a shepherd, unlike to the life of someone in court, is um, the very is the most basic things, and those basic things um, at their most basic are love and death and so pastoral poetry tends to be poetry which reduces and simplifies and um, radicalizes um, a depiction of human feeling. Um, the great pastorals tend to be elegies. That is, um, it's a shepherd who is singing a song of grief over usually, though not always, the death of another shepherd. Um, that's what the classical great um, elegy um, is um, uh, in, in Bayan's Lament over Mosca's. But there are many pastoral elegies. Yeah? I was just saying, can you be with me and be my wife? Is that it? Sorry? Come be with me and be my wife. Oh, um, come, come live with me and be my love. Um, yeah, that is, that's a pastoral love poem. Um, we'll, we'll do all sorts of things that you can do um, if you just live outdoors and you're a shepherd or a shepherdess. Um, we'll see that in um, Andrew Marvell as well. Um, he has actually, he replaces the shepherd with a mower, um, someone who cuts grass. And um, those poems are really, really wonderful. But we'll see it in Milton's Lycidas. In Lycidas, Milton is um, talking about the death of a friend of his. And he says, well, we pastured our flocks on the same hill. And really, what that means is we went to the same university. Um, And we took walks in the same quads, but those quads are now represented as places where they've taken their sheep. so the idea anyhow of pastoral is, is that it's radical simplicity. Arcadia is a romance in which um, various things happen. Um, but Strephon and um, Gaius are um, they're both in love with the same woman. And she's not there. And they're wondering where she is. And um, they're looking forward to seeing her. And they're both shepherds. And so what they do is they sing this song together. Um, in in um, kind of alternating stanzas um, and they spend morning and evening doing it our morning hymn this is and song at evening um, where do they live? they live in a world of mountains and valleys and what is what um, and forests and what do they produce in that world? music and when do they do it? morning and evening so it's everything um, and um, she is missing, but they want her back. Now, that's part of it. it it's, it's a, Arcadia is a hodgepodge of dozens and dozens of different stories that are brought together. Um, in the land of Arcadia, if you know, anyone know Thomas Stoppard's Arcadia, his play Arcadia? Um, well, the idea of Arcadia is Arcadia then becomes thought of as a kind of utopian place where you can just live happily like a shepherd. Um, if you know Shakespeare's As You Like It, the idea in As You Like It is to leave the sophistication of the city and go live like a shepherd. Um, Love's Labor's Lost to some extent is like that also. If you know The Winter's Tale, The Winter's Tale is very much a pastoral play. That is, there's there's sheep shearing that goes on. Um, you leave um, the horrors and, and um, dreadfulness of court And what's completely palate cleansing in The Winter's Tale um, is a very, very long act of um, people living a pastoral life. Um, So pastoral has become synonymous with um, a life of gentleness and ease, um, a life where where things are okay and not much is demanded of you and you can cultivate without sophistication those human capacities that it's most worth cultivating. so this is very attractive. This, the idea of, of pastoral is particularly attractive to people who live lives of hothouse um, anxiety and sophistication. That is life of people in court. Real shepherds hate it. It's a really kind of sucky life to be a <laughs> shepherd. Um, but the fantasy of being a shepherd, it's what gets people to join kibbutzim, it's what gets people to join communes, um, is the idea that you could radically simp- simplify your life and that would make you happy. Um, The best way to be happy, the best way to engage in that radical simplification and to try to be happy is actually to write poems about it, not to go (laughs) and shear sheep, Um, and to get lost in the thought of writing poems about it. Uh, Some of what you read from The Fairy Queen is from the Pastoral Book of the Fairy Queen. Book six of the Fairy Queen um, is is the book where um, the knight joins the shepherds and discovers that they live a life of very great simplicity. That's the book of courtesy. Um, so all of these um, ideas, these are long-standing ideas in literature. Um, and it tends to be the more sophisticated the poet, the more the idea of pastoral poetry, the more the idea of pastoral poetry is appealing. Um, so what Sidney does is he gives this, he brings into English this very sophisticated form, the sestina, um, and he um, underlines its elemental quality, or the elemental um, feeling and emotion that it seems to make possible. Morning, evening, um, forest, music, mountains, um, valleys. You know, what, really, what else is there in life? Um, And at least that's the fantasy. What else is there in life? Um, And yet he has this really, really complex form. Um, It's not like breaking an egg and eating it. It's like figuring out the structure of DNA in an egg. Um, (laughs) Only more so. DNA only has four base pairs, whereas the cystina has six. Um, So that's um, that combination of complexity and simplicity That's something that Sydney is um, working at. If you remember, do you remember, um, I will put this as a question. Actually, I'll put this as a quiz, and that'll fool you all. So this is a quiz that'll get you extra credit. Take out a piece of paper. Ha ha. It's okay if you don't get it, that's fine. It's just a question, will you get it? Okay, write your names. Describe any way that you can. If you can tell me the number, that's fine, but you won't be able to. Describe in any way you can the sonnet in Astrophel and Stella that in its form, that is to say not what it's about, blah, 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 simply in its form is most like a sestina. You either noticed it or you didn't. Um, no, it's fine if you can't. You're not being marked down for getting this for not getting this right. The worst you no, no, it's not open book. <laughs> <laughs> Just can you think, can you remember a sonnet that struck you as being in some way like a Sistina? Yeah, gonna- yeah, it's a quiz. <laughs> not only your names, but if you know the answer. Do it. Okay, time up. Anyone have any idea? Here, hand them in. Don't hand them in if you don't want to. It's fine. But if you think you might know. Yeah, all right. First he doesn't think I'm going to do it. Then he's pissed off that I am doing it. Then he's the only one to hand it in. All right. Whoa, how'd you get the number? I thought it was really weird. They're going to ask questions about it. <laughs> 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 Can you believe it? He got the number right. Um, almost, but not quite. Uh, what does that say? First and I see. Um, OK, no one else? You don't even want to take the one in 19th. 108 chance that you could get the number right? Yeah. I mean, it is February 29th. <laughs> <laughs> This only comes about, actually, I worked this out before, once every 1,426 days, I think, is, you only get a February 29th, and that's, the chances of you getting the sonnet right are 10 times higher than the chances that today would be February 29th. Okay, what sonnet is it? 89. 89. Yeah, I can't believe you remember the number. Okay, take a look at sonnet 89. Yes Because yes. <laughs> Count That's why so Of course it rhymes Says who <laughs> Rules are made to be <laughs> Broken And that's what he does here It's a really So what did you think about it when you saw it Did you think oh no this doesn't count Or did you think god that's clever <laughs> it doesn't count as a sonnet, but I really like it okay um, I'm just trying to find it not in my book uh, almost there 88, here we go so why don't you read it Gabriel I don't like public speaking good, it's good for you <laughs> now that of the absence the most awesome night with darkest shade doth overcome my day Since Stella's eyes won't to give me my day, leaving my hemisphere, leave me in night. Each day seems long and longs for long-stead night. The night is tedious, woo's the approach of day. Tired with the dusty toils of busy day, languished with horrors of the silent night, suffering the evils both of day and night, while no night is more dark than is my day. Nor no day hath less quiet than my night, with such bad mixtures of my night and day, the living thus in blackest winter night i feel the flames of summer day great thank you um you read that really well you should be, you sh- you should do it more often mm-hmm. um okay so what's the rhyme scheme A, B, B, A. yeah Okay, so um, just to do it again, A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A, A-B-A-B-A-B, is that how you want to do it? Does everyone agree that that's the rhyme scheme? This is a metaphysical question. It's not a, um, wait, how are you pronouncing that word? It's actually a metaphysical question. Yeah. Oh, your hand's not up. My hands are down here. No, 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 you moved your pencil up, and in my peripheral vision, it looked like you were raising your hand, but I was wrong. Does everyone agree that that's a rhyme scheme? A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A, A-B-A-B-A-B? Yes. Anyone want to make an argument that it isn't? Well, Some of the lines have internal uses of both. my. Yeah, um, we've seen that before, though. Right. That is that something that Sidney is actually strikingly good at is using words within a line that he will then use as a rhyme as well, either in that line or the next line. So, what's an example of that? Um, the night is tedious, the approach of day. Uh huh. Or each day seems long, mm-hmm. and longs for long stayed night. So notice the parallels between those two lines. Each day the night, that is the second word in each line, becomes the antonym for the last word in that line, right? Each day seems long and longs for long-stayed night. The night, as tedious, woos the approach of day. Um, Other places where that happens? I mean, this is partly just so you can see how amazingly sophisticated Sydney is. Just the Density, the micro um, uh, networking that he does in these poems. Rhyming is easy. Um, internal relationships between rhymed lines are much harder. This is a poem of very intense symmetry because it's a symmetry between night and day. Um, I like the line on um, each day seems long and longs for a long stay night. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So, what's going on there? Um, I guess there's a parallel between long, as in the day is long, and longing. Uh huh. And then I guess long stayed would be the same meaning as each day seems. Long. Yeah, but it also means something like you get the sense that what it means to long for something is to feel that it's a long time in coming. So each day seems long. Okay, that doesn't mean you necessarily want it to be over. It means that it's long. But longs for means that you do want it to be over. And then long stayed means that's what's been kept from you for a long time. Um, What about um, suffering the evils both? Here, look up. Don't look at the poem. Here's the line, suffering the evils both of the day and night if that line is in the poem what can you predict you will also find in the poem i'll read you the line again suffering the evils both of the day and night what will you have to find in this poem knowing sydney as you do yale yes exactly so if you look at um line um 12 with such bad mixture of my night and day that is, the symmetry, the balance has to be there. Um, and that wouldn't be true of most poets. Most poets would say, oh, look, night and day, that's so cool. I've managed to do the entire sonnet with only those end words. That's what makes it like a Sestina, is the repetition of the end words. Um, and I've even thrown in a few extra nights and days. What more could any readership want? Um, but Sidney is really exquisite in his workmanship. And that's part of his sophistication. So, um, again, let me ask you the metaphysical question. What do you think the rhyme scheme is? Obviously, I'm not happy um, with stopping with the answer that it's A B A B A B. What's another possibility? This may just be two-worded questions. Yeah. So you'd need some sort of A1 or A2 for day and night, like, at the okay, so one thing that's happening is you're getting, um, in getting the antonyms, that is each line is neighbored by an antonym. So even though you get two days together in the, in the uh, middle two lines of the first and the second quatrain, um, it still goes night, day, okay, day, night. And notice that it's sort of like reversal within reversal. That is, night reverses into day. But then instead of continuing the reversal of night to day by going night to day, night to day, et cetera, you reverse that. You invert the order by which night goes into day and is immediately followed by its opposite by following it by the same, day and then night. And then you reverse that by having night this time followed by night. And then that gets followed by day, and then day, night, et cetera. And then in the sestet, you do something else with those. Um, so so you get, it's opposite day, and it's opposite, opposite day, too, which it has to be on opposite day. It's February 29th, after all. And it's opposite, opposite, opposite day, and so forth. But the standard sonnet that you will find in Sydney, um, one version of the standard sonnet is A B B A, A B. B, A, C, D, C, D, E, E or C, D, E, C, D, E um, or sometimes just C, D, C, D, C, D. So it's almost as though what he's doing here is taking um, a sonnet and I think that if you've, if you've read 88 of his sonnets before this then you're used to the vast majority of them having different rhymes in the sestet than in the octet in the last six lines from the first eight lines. And he wants you to be used to that. He wants you to be regarding the night and day of the sestet as being in your mental accounting, in your mental template of the sonnet, as being in the place where the C and D comes in, not where the A and B keeps repeating. So on the one hand, it does keep repeating. On the other hand, there's a kind of really interesting counterpoint from with the sonnets where we get the introduction of a new rhyme in the sestet. And he's not introducing a new rhyme. That's what's new about it. So we're expecting something new, just as we expect something new in every rhyme, that is, we don't want words to rhyme with themselves, we want words um, to chime with themselves. Um, We're expecting something new, and what's new is that we don't get anything new. What's new is that we get repetition instead. If only the first stanza were, if, if the whole poem were something like, now that of absence the most irksome night with darkest shade doth overcome my day since Stella's days want to give me their ray leaving my hemisphere, leave me a night. Um, if we got that, that is a repetition of night but not the repetition of day, we would say, wait, there's something wrong there. But it's so clear what he's doing by the time you get to the, fir- the end of the first stanza that from then on you're waiting to see whether it's only going to be two words ending every line, or will it only be two words in the octet or what? Um, and as I say, he not only does he do that really surprising and novel thing, um, but he does and it's a sestina like thing. That is, again, it's the repetition of, of words rather than a difference in words. Not only does he do that, um, but he does it in ways that are perfectly balanced. Um, this is a game poets, really sophisticated poets, play. Um, there's an example in Dante in Paradiso. Dante um, ends every um, um, book of the Divine Comedy, um, Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradiso, with the same word. Do people know that? Do you know what word it is? Anyone? Stars, um, Stelle. Um, so that is, the, that is the last line of, in, the last word of Inferno, the last word of Purgatorio, and the last word of Paradiso is the word stars. Um, he also several times has, um, not in Inferno, but in both Purgatorio and Paradiso, um, Christ is mentioned. Of course Christ isn't mentioned in hell. Um, but he's mentioned um, several times as a rhyme word but then there's a kind of hard theological question, which is, if you're a believing poet, what do you rhyme with Christ if Christ is the absolute transcendence of all human and even angelic um, ways of existence? And Dante answers that question by rhyming Christ with Christ. That is, it's terza rima. Remember, it's ABABCB. That's the form of terza rima. And when he uses Christ as a rhyme word, he always rhymes Christ with Christ and with nothing else, as though nothing else could rhyme with Christ. Um, and there are plenty of things that can rhyme with Christ in both Italian and in English, um, but he doesn't. He doesn't say anything like. And then at last, I found what that I found. Um, what did? Uh, I found at last what what had sufficed the name of my great Savior Jesus Christ. He would never do that um, so he rhymes Christ with Christ. however, every other rhyme in dante um, there are no other rich rhymes, no other i mean there are rich rhymes, there are no other um homonym, there are no other sorry there are no other repetitive rhymes, so it's actually a principle of interpretation that If Dante rhymes a word with its homonym, which is okay, we saw that in Chaucer, remember? Um, The holy blissful martyr for to seca, that hem hatolp and wan that they were seca. The holy blissful martyr for to seek, who helped them when they were sick. Um, In Middle English, the words sound the same seca and seca, seek and sick, Um, but because they mean something different, they count as rhyming. In Dante, there's some hard lines where you have homophonic rhyming like that, homonymic rhyming like that. And it turns out that knowing that he won't rhyme a word with itself helps you interpret those lines. That is, the word you have to realize that he's using a homonym and not a repetition of a word. And that helps you to understand what the line means, which would otherwise be ambiguous. Um, If you know that the word isn't being repeated, but a homonym of the word is being used, um, that helps you understand what's going on, um, which is a useful interpretive tool. But all of this is really, really highly sophisticated, a highly sophisticated thing to do. Um, And that's what Sidney is doing also. Um, But in the meantime, he's just saying, oh, fool said my muse to me, look in my heart and write. Um, There is no one more artificial than Sidney. But that's a good thing, not a bad thing, his artifice. There's no one whose craftsmanship is more careful and more studied. Um, He says it shouldn't look like um, I'm studying all the time, trying to write these poems perfectly. But he is studying all the time, trying to write the poems perfectly. Um, And that's a really neat thing about him. Okay, let us look at... um, again, thinking about, we we're going to look at uh, 57 and 58, um, but just, let's just go straight to 58, I guess. Um, so what happens in 58, this marks a stage in their relationship, is something interesting. Doubt there hath been when with his golden chain... The orator so far men's hearts doth bind that no pace else their guided steps can find, but as he them more short or slack doth reign. Whether with words this sovereignty he gain, clothed with fine tropes with strongest reasons lined, or else pronouncing grace wherewith his mind prints his own lively form, in Rudist brain. So so he says, there's been a question on the philosophy of rhetoric. This is a little bit hard, (coughs) but unpackable. There's a question on the philosophy of rhetoric. What is it that makes um, orators able to hold their audiences captive and to speed them up or slow them down in their own emotions and their own thought Is it the language that he uses? Is it very careful pacing of language? Um, Or is it that um, by expressing himself naturally, expressing his own feelings in the most natural way that he can express them, they are contagious and communicate them to others? So this is a very long question in rhetoric. Is rhetoric um, um, a, a sort of... Carefully considered um artificially wrought um acted way of getting other people to be em- to be emotionally bound up in what you're saying, even though you yourself don't feel it um is it is it a a factitious thing, or is it that if the rhetorician really feels what he or she is saying? That'll be communicated to an audience. This is something to ask yourself you know, in this season of presidential politics. Um, when you hear a stump speech from Romney or Gingrich or Santorum or whatever, um, the first time you hear it, you may feel, boy, they're really speaking passionately. Um, if you see Santorum give the same speech three days in a row in three different places, um, then you can say, boy, he's really got the shtick down. Um, he can do it in his sleep. He seems passionate, but he's just repeating himself over and over again. Um, and he's repeating what, what he knows will, will, str- will be emotional for his audience, even though for him, it's just become a routine. So this is an old question. Um, there, um, maybe 20 years ago in Harper's, someone, had, someone published a trove of photos they'd found of Hitler practicing gestures before the mirror. So Hitler was an amazing um, uh, orator. Um, that's one reason that he was so successful and so dangerous. And he would produce these amazing hand gestures as, as he was um, ranting in front of an audience of hundreds of thousands. Um, and they looked spontaneous, and everyone thought they were spontaneous. But then these photos were found fairly recently. I mean, not that recently by your lights, but by mine. Fairly recently. And it turned out that he actually very carefully practiced the gestures he was going to use in front of this crowd Um, and that they were really well thought out and that he actually had The reason these photos existed is that he had a photographer take pictures so he could see what they would look like. Um, And that's the question that um, goes way back. Is a good orator someone who has practiced or someone who allows the spontaneity of what he wants to say um, to come out in the um, in in the moment that he's giving his speech. Um, if you think of Brutus in Julius Caesar, and then of Mark Antony and Julius Caesar when they both speak to the crowd, um, Mark Antony looks spontaneous, um, and yet he has this highly, very, very careful speech, which uh, much more careful than Brutus's, um, and that's what convinces the crowd: the friends, Romans, countrymen speech. So here, this question comes up. Doubt there hath been, when with his golden chain the orator so far men's hearts doth bind, that no pace else their guided steps can find, but as he then more shorter slack doth reign, whether with words this sovereignty he gain, clothed with fine tropes with strongest reasons lined, or else pronouncing grace wherewith his mind prints his own lively form and rudest brain. Now judge by this. So if you want to know, I can give you the answer to this this two thousand year old question. Now judge by this. In piercing phrases, late, the anatomy of all my woes I rate. Stella's sweet breath, the same to me did read. O voice, O face, maugre my speeches' might, which wooed woe. Most ravishing delight, even those sad words, even in sad me, did breed. So, quick interpretation, what does that mean? What happened? Just paraphrase. Okay, now judge by this, what does that mean? What does "wrote" mean? Wrote. All right, so. Did she read this poem? Yes. Aloud. Oh, and then even though. Okay, now Okay, so he worked really hard to write a sad poem in which he would woo woe, which is what we do in sad poems, right? And what he wanted to know was is it the carefulness and cleverness of the writing, or is it the emotion? of the person who's, um, and feeling of the person who's reading them. Do we love the word? Are we affected by um, the language, or are we affected by the speaker? So he says, okay, I can give you an answer to that. I wrote really carefully, really good, sad poetry. Couldn't really, this is the best I could do, and I was totally committed to the sadness of it. What does Moger mean? Do people know? In spite of. In spite of, yeah. Um, that 's that's another word you should know uh, in sixteenth and seventeenth century english you 'll find it in um, it 's French e um, and you 'll still see it in French um, Malgré is um, what you 'll find in contemporary French um, and it means um, despite, it, in, it literally in spite of um, to, it means to have spite for someone um, bon gré means to like to, to be agreeable well it 's actually our word agree comes from it. So moger means bad agreement. Um, I don't want to agree, but nevertheless, in spite of my desire not to agree, I do agree. So mo- so it's like malgrement might be um, a portmanteau word in modern English. Um, so despite moger, um, my speeches might, which wooed woe, what happened? Someone. When she read it, it was delightful even to him. Yeah. God, she's reading my poem, and it just sounds so great when she reads. Um, And it's my poem that she's reading, and now I'm really happy. Um, So he wrote this sad poem. She read it aloud, presumably in public. That is, this is more of the same kind of entertainment. We already know from, from, what is it, 45, that um, they spend time listening to literary renditions of sad stories. Now, one day, it was his um, time for the court workshop to occur. His poem got workshopped, um, and she read it aloud, and that was great. But that also tells you something that, that again, there's, there's more going on between them. Um, in the series of events, some fortunate and some not, um, in the series of events that take place um, in the course of Astrophel and Stella, this is one of them. She's reading his poems aloud. And um, so that's another thing that happens. Um, if you look at, um, let's go to 66 just for a second. Um, And do I see some cause a hope to feed? Or doth the tedious burden of long woe in weakened minds, quick apprehending breed of every image which may comfort show? So do I have some reason to feel hopeful? Or is it that I've been sad so long that I've been weakened, and now um, anything which might look like it might mean something, I'm very quick to think is a good thing? I cannot brag of word much less of deed. Fortune wheels still with me in one sort slow. My wealth no more and no wit less my need. Desire still on the stilts of fear doth go. So I can't really say that anything is better, but a kind of cool thing happened. Yet amid all fears a hope there is, stone to my heart since last fair night Nay day. Stella's eyes sent to me the beams of bliss looking on me while I look while I looked other way. So last night they were at a party. Um and he calls it day because suddenly he felt her eyes upon him and that felt like the illumination. He says this several times that her eyes are like the sun or like morning. Hence, nay, day. And what happened? Stella's eyes sent to me the beams of bliss looking on me while I looked other way. But when my eyes back to their heaven did move, what's their heaven? Her. They fled with blush, which guilty seemed of love. So what was so good? That he caught her looking. How did he know that he was catching her looking? Because she looked away. Um, So there's an event, um, a possible event, Um, she blushed. She looked away and she blushed. And you've all had that experience. Probably been on both sides of that experience. Um, But for him, that's a hopeful moment. Um, So again, you can see that they're constantly thrown together. And they're getting to know each other more and more as they're constantly thrown together. Okay, let's go a little bit farther Um, because then what happens next... um, Okay, in in 67, he continues to have this hope, continues to see that maybe she's blushing when she looks at him. Um, And... um, Go to 69, where we get an O oh, joy. Um, we've skipped the grammar rules question. Um, that's when she said no, no to him, which is really the first time she speaks, um, because no, no means yes, so that's a good thing. Um, but now we get to 69 and we get a sonnet which begins "Oh joy. O joy too high for my low style to show, O bliss fit for a nobler state than me, Envy put out thine eyes, lest thou do see what oceans of delight in me do flow. It's never been so happy in this entire series of sonnets. My friend that oft thrall through all masks my woe, Come, come, and let me pour myself on thee. Gone is the winter of my misery. My spring appears. Oh, see what here doth grow. For Stella hath with words where faith doth shine. Of her high heart given me the monarchy. So she said, yeah, it's okay for you to love me. Yes, I love you. Something amazing has happened there. First she blushed, I <sighs> caught her looking. She blushes some more and now, holy cats or cats, isn't this cool? What do you think, cats? Um, this hepcat is being, getting some reciprocity from Stella. I, I, oh, I may say that she is mine. So that's amazing. I wonder what happened. And though she give but thus conditionally. And there's the um, fine print. You can, yeah, you can say that I'm yours, but conditionally. So what's the fine print? This realm of bliss, while virtuous course, I take. So she gives this, t- this realm of bliss to me conditionally, namely, while I stay virtuous. Well, virtuous course I take. And then he says, well, no kings be crowned, but they some covenants make. So I got to be king. She loves me. It's great. And it's true that nothing can happen. That was the deal, that she was willing to say that she loved me best as long as I didn't think that anything would come of that. That's totally great. I'm perfectly fine with it. What really matters to me is that Stella should love me. So that's a huge step forward in the course of this narrative, but notice that it's a step forward that um, really is what at the very start he had had aimed at. So let's just remind ourselves of the convention of courtly love is that if you wanna be a poet and a love poet and write about courtly love, um, and we talked, I think, yeah, we did talk about this earlier on in the course. Um, that poetry in modern languages um, are, this is again something Dante has said, that the reason poetry in modern, it, it, the reason people write in modern languages instead of Latin is so that they can write love poetry to women who don't know Latin. Um, and so the idea of love poetry and poetry in modern languages go together. And the idea of courtly love poetry is you pick someone who you can't possibly attain. And the reason to pick such a person is then you can write poems, you can woo-woe, to use Sidney's term. Um, you can write poems about the unattainability of the cruel fair. What could be better for a poet than being desperately in love with someone who he can't get beyond being desperately in love with? so. In a kind of natural antithesis, that's the um, ideal object of desire, is a person you can't obtain, and all the great um, poems are written to unobtainable people. And so, this, in a sense, sixty-nine, is the um, the maxima that he can hope to achieve. The unobtainable person acknowledges him as long as virtuousness is sustained. So you can love me and I will love you back, but nothing will come of this. That's what he wanted from the very start. That was the project of the poem. That's the project of any courtly love poem. So it's all great. Seventy, he repeats it. My muse may well grudge at my heavenly joy, if still I force her in sad rhymes to creep. She oft hath drunk my tears, now hopes to enjoy nectar of mirth, since I, Jove's cup, do keep. So his muse may be happy, may be unhappy that he's now happy, because he'd been writing poems about being sad and frustrated. Um, and now, what's he, now he's supposed to write happy poems, but he says tough, too bad. Muse of sad, desperate, longing poems. Sonnets be not bound, prentice to annoy. Sonnets don't only have to be about sad things. Um, you will see Sidney. I mean, you'll see Herbert say something similar to this um, when we look at Herbert's Jordan poems. Sonnets be not bound, prentice to annoy. Trebles sing high, as well as basses deep. So basses are singing sad songs, presumably, but trebles, cheerful treble songs, they're just as high as basses are deep. There's nothing wrong with happy songs. Grief, but love's winter livery is. The boy hath cheeks to smile, as well as eyes to weep. That boy there being Cupid. Come then, my muse. Show thou height of delight in well-raised notes. My pen, the best it may, shall paint out joy, though but in black and white. Cease, eager muse, peace pen, for my sake stay. I give you here my, tra- my hand for truth of this. Why silence is best music unto bliss." So he says, I'm going to try to write happy poems. And then he says, well, actually, I'm so happy that it would be better to be quiet. Happy poems are really kind of impossible. Um, poems about true happiness are kind of impossible. I mean, think about it. How many poems about true happiness do you know? E Cummings tried them, right? Is that what you're gonna say? Yeah. Yeah. In just spring when the world is puddle wonderful, and the little lame balloon man whistles far and we and it's spring. Yeah. So E Cummings is about the best you can do in so happy, happy poems. He's so happy he didn't need capital letters. That's right. Um, And the sweet, soft, clumsy feet of April climb into the silent meadow of my soul. It's ridiculous how much e comings I once learned. Um, So it's all happy. Let's see how it continues. (laughs) Who will, this is one of the most famous of the sonnets, who will in fairest book of nature know how virtue may best lodged in beauty be. Let him but learn of love. To read in thee, Stella, those fair lines which true goodness show. So, who is going to wonder about this question of the relation of beauty to virtue? On the question, could beauty have better commerce than with virtue? Uh, Well, there's this sonnet, but there's several others. But who, besides Sidney, what later figure is going to wonder about the relation of beauty to virtue? Um, what later poet? Um. Not that nature and God aren't poets, but. Oh, I thought you meant, sorry, I thought. OK. Where? In a lot of these sonnets. <laughs> this is the conversation that Hamlet and Ophelia have. It's the get thee to a nunnery um, <laughs> conversation, where Hamlet says to Ophelia, ha ha, are you fair, Ophelia, my lord? Are you honest? What well, means your lordship? That if you're honest and fair, and then he, he doubts they could go together. Ophelia says, um, could honesty have better commerce than with beauty? And then he says, get thee to a nunnery, because if you're fair, no one will think you're honest. Um, be thou as pure as ice, what is it? As, as cold as ice, as pure as snow, thou shalt not escape calumny. So this relation of whether you can both be beautiful and be considered virtuous? I mean, that's an oldish question, but it's, but um, Sydney is saying, here's the answer. If you want to look, the general view is, um, you can tell someone is virtuous because they're not good looking, because if they were good looking, they would have no reason to be virtuous. Um, And um, what Sydney is saying is, no, look at Stella. She's the most beautiful person in the world, and she's also the most virtuous, and she proves that virtue is beautiful, that beauty can be virtuous, that perfection is perfection all the way through. So who will in fairest book of nature, that is read the text of nature, and if you want to know what nature says about virtue, how virtue can be lodged in beauty. Beauty is external. It's like the house. The beautiful body is like the house of the soul. Virtue belongs to the soul. Who will in fairest book of nature know how virtue may best lodged in beauty be? Let him but learn of love to read in thee. That is, let love teach him to read in you, in the book of nature. Stella, those fair lines which true goodness show. Lines there meaning both written lines, like the lines of a poem, and also depicted lines, like the lines of a picture. Look at you, look at your picture, and read the lines which show true goodness. There, in you, shall he find all vices overthrow, not by rude force, but sweetest sovereignty of reason, from whose light those night birds fly. So vices are night birds, people attracted to you sexually, They will look at you and the sweet sovereignty of your reason and your virtue and your goodness will make them embarrassed and those night birds of vice will fly. That inward sun in thine eyes shineth so. So no one could look at you and have sexual fantasies gorgeous as you are because of the inward light that shines from your eyes. And... Not content to be perfections, heir thyself, dost strive all minds that way to move who mark in thee what is in thee most fair. So not only are you perfect, but you want to make everyone else perfect. And so everyone who looks at you will mark what is most fair about you, which is your virtue. Fair as your outward. Form is what is most fair about you is your virtue. So while thy beauty draws the heart to love, people see you and they want and they fall in love with you immediately because of your beauty. But even though that happens to them, it's a good thing because as fast thy virtue bends that love to good. So people fall for you and then. They fall in love with you because you're so beautiful, but then you're also so virtuous that you turn their love for you into something good. It's just great how amazing this is, and that you love me as long as I remain virtuous, and everything is just special. But ah, desire still cries. Give me some food. And actually, no. It turns out that this little deal they came to, which is that he could be in love with her, and she would say, yes, I love you, platonically. And he was really happy about that for all of two sonnets, (laughs) plus 13 lines of a third. And then, no, that's really not enough. Um, And so if you look at the next one, here's the deal. Desire, though thou my old companion art, and also clings to my pure love that I one from the other scarcely can descry while each doth blow the fire of my heart. Now from thy fellowship I needs must part. Venus is taught with Diane's wings to fly. I must know more in thy sweet passions lie. Virtue's gold, now must head my cupid's dart. If you see something vaguely obscene there, you're right. Um, service and honor, wonder with delight, fear to offend, will, will worthy to appear, care shining in my eyes, faith in my sprite, these things are left me by my only dear. So I can have all these things, um, as long as this is like the Petrarchan idea, she that meet, thus me meet, teaches to suffer pain. Um, and wills that my lust be ruled and love's negligence be ruled by um, reason, what is it, reason, blank and reverence with his heartiness now taketh displeasure wherewithal unto the heart's forest he fleeth leaving his enterprise with pain and cry she says you can have a virtuous relationship you can like me platonically and he's trying He's allowed to like her as long as it's service and honor, wonder with delight, fear to offend, will worthy to appear, care shining in my eyes, faith in my sprite. These things are left me by my only dear. But thou desire, because thou wouldst have all now banished art. But yet, alas, how shall? So he's trying to get rid of his desire for her, pure sexual desire. And he can't. Desire keeps crying, give me some food. So it just can't happen. Then he sees her asleep, and what does he do? Kisses her. Um, sorry? Kiss and violates her? Well, no, but um, he could have tried to be more seductive still. Um, eventually he will be more seductive. Um, but let's go to the eighth song. We have a couple of minutes. Um, and the eighth song is, is one of the great things um, in Astrophel and Stella. Um, we won't do it all now. We'll start with this on Monday as well. But here's a little story. And notice that the story's in the third person. Up until now, it's always been in the first person. But now the eighth song... Do, do you have a page number for it? In a grove most rich of shade where birds wanton music made. May then young his pied weeds showing, new perfumed with flowers fresh growing. Astrophel with Stella sweet did for mutual comfort meet. So there they are meeting secretly in this shade. Astrophel with Stella sweet did for mutual comfort meet both within themselves oppressed, but each in the other blessed." So here they are, this is a happy moment for two people who are not happy, who are feeling oppressed, whether because they can't actually get together or because they're real people living real lives. Um, It's a pretty powerful psychological depiction here that here's a break from the oppression of real life. Him great harms had taught much care. So lots of bad things had happened to Astrophil, not having to do with Stella, just lots of bad things. Him great arms, harms had taught much care. Her fair neck, a foul yoke bear. So that would be her marriage. But her sight, his cares did vanish. In his sight, her yoke did vanish. Wept. They had, alas, the while, but now tears themselves did smile while their eyes, by love directed, interchangeably reflected. So they wept, but now they are comforting each other. Sigh they did, but now betwixt sighs of woe were glad sighs mixed with arms crossed yet testifying restless rest and living, dying. Their ears hungry of each word which the dear tongue would afford. But their tongues restrained from walking till their hearts had ended talking. So they're silent together looking at each other. But when their tongues could not speak, love itself did silence break. Love did set his lips asunder, thus to speak in love and wonder. And now Astrophel speaks. Um, Just, we'll stop here, but what I want you to notice, the his there is Astrophel's. We know that because it's love itself did silence break. Love did set his lips asunder, so it made him talk. And then he speaks in love and wonder, and he starts speaking the words, Stella, sovereign of my joy. This is what he says to her. So we will pick up here on Monday. Yeah, it's just keep following the syllabus. Um, We will move on on Monday as well. Wait, so Monday we're doing what? Um...